Do you want to go down to a 40-hour week without losing revenue? If you're ready to let go of all the extra hours, the stress, the overwhelm, and the clients who hijack your time, consider my signature program, Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind. In it, we'll get your accounting practice under control. We'll fix your pricing problems. I'll show you ways to price so you stop giving away the farm so you bring in more revenue for the work you're already doing. I'll help you disengage the clients who are good people but are holding your business back and slowing you down. I'll help you package up your services and design them so they're easy for your clients to understand and choose from while helping you simplify and standardize what you sell. And we'll focus on making your messaging more interesting and compelling so you attract more of the kinds of clients you want to work with and break out of the hodgepodge of referrals trap. We get your prices up, we get your workload down. We standardize, we simplify, we streamline. And we do this at a pace that feels doable, where you feel confident in every choice you make. Prices up, workload down. Registration is open now. We start Tuesday, May 7th. Come with us. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to find out more. I want other people to be as successful as they can be in using business as a force for good. Welcome to the She Thinks Big podcast, where you'll hear from women entrepreneurs who are doing good in the world, from spark to screw up to success. Thinking big is in their core. It's in yours and it's in mine. I've traveled to 50 countries and seven continents, done an Ironman, and co-founded a company that has generated millions of dollars for sustainability. My name is Geraldine Carter, and I'm delighted to share with you conversations and coaching with amazing women. Time to get inspired and grow your impact. Have you ever brought a reusable canvas shopping bag to the grocery store? If you have, you might have Sharon Rowe to thank for it. 20 years ago, she was fed up with single-use plastic shopping bags. On a trip to France, she saw shoppers using woven baskets and string filet sacks to carry home groceries from the market. When she returned, she knew that she had to bring this idea to shoppers in the U.S. and set about finding a bag that would work. She started selling canvas eco bags from a table on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan and went from there to a spot on Oprah. She was experiencing great success until the crash in 2008 required deep changes and renewed intentionality. In her 20 years as owner of eco bags, she has learned an incredible amount about what it takes to run a successful small business as you might imagine. She shares that knowledge in her new book, The Magic of Tiny Business. Here's Sharon Rowe of EcoBags. Hi, Sharon. Welcome to the She Thinks Big podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me on this. Yeah, I'm so excited that you're here. For our listeners, we met way back, we actually don't know when, 2009, 2011, on Climate Ride. And it's really nice to reconnect with you and to get the story around EcoBags. So thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. I still have Climate Ride as one of really like a peak experience. So it's a thrilling for me to be talking to you, really. Oh, great. I love hearing yeah. that. Yeah. Most of us don't realize that we have an entrepreneurial bone in our body until we start doing it. And I'm really just curious to know, what was your first experience of being an entrepreneur? My first experience, well, you know, I grew up in a retail family and we had a store, a single army and Navy store. So I was folding jeans from the time I was 12 to 18 and working, you know, weekends and nights. 
so I think I got a taste of it from my dad. I don't know if I would call it an entrepreneurial spirit back then, more of a small business experience, you know, yeah. of doing something yourself, owning your time and being in charge of all the ups and of all the downs. And then I wound up going to school and following a career path into acting. So as an actor, you are an entrepreneur. You've got to make it up as you go along. That's your path. That's what you have to do. You know, I went to school where they say risk, fail, risk again. So I was practicing failing a lot for many, many years. Yeah. I think as entrepreneurs, one of the things that we learn is that we have to fail again and again and again in order to succeed. Yeah. It's never comfortable, but like I just wrote in an article for Virgin, you learn to get comfortably uncomfortable. Yes, you do. You've got to be comfortable being outside your comfort zone because that's where you need to be in order yeah. to be moving forward. You never know the thing you need to know. It's not until you kind of fail and flail that you figure it out. Until you're in it. It's like improv. When you're doing improv, you're not supposed to step onto that stage or into that circle knowing what you're going to do. You're supposed to step in basically naked and you're supposed to take your cues at that moment in that instant. And that's like, okay. <laughs> it's a very vulnerable place to be. And you fail a lot and you fall on your face and it can be extremely embarrassing. But you know what? You're alive still and you have another opportunity to get up and do it again. Yeah. So you learned a lot from acting that carries yeah. over in a lot of ways. Yeah, a ton. Yeah. And also I learned how to make things up, how to say, okay, look, this is what I know. This is what I sort of know. Oh, this is what I don't know. But then where I got into trouble, you know, was places where I didn't even know what I didn't know. But you right. can never know everything. You can't know everything. Yeah. So you just have to work with what you've got and be humble enough when you don't know what you don't know and you're in that place, you reach out, yeah. you know. But what's really interesting, when you don't know what you don't know, you don't know who to go for what you need. Right. So if you're just in a frenzy, you can't really hear the answer. And I've been in that place, but I've also been in the place where I learned to listen. And I learned to listen for the clues that would take me to that next path, basically. It's kind of like being lost in the woods, you know? Okay, I'll take that path now and decide to say, okay, it may not be the perfect path, but it's the path I'm going to take right now to get me where I need to be next, just and to get me out of this hole or whatever. Yeah, and then hopefully there'll be some more clues when I get to the next place. Yeah, and it's all very theoretical, but you know, when you're balancing your checking account and you're looking at your profit and loss and you've got people on payroll, it can get dark, so you're looking for that light. Yes, it is a lot like wandering around in a dark room and you're just feeling for walls. That's not the way to go. You have to get really comfortable being like that because it doesn't happen all the time. But when it does happen, you cannot panic. You have to sort of steadfastly go forward. And that's where different levels of discipline come in and practices and things like budgets and forecasts and you know other things having to do with the bare bones or the structure of the business. Before we get too far into the metaphysical yeah. here, when did you get the spark for your idea for Ecobags? Well, the spark for my idea to start Ecobags came sort of slowly and then pop really quickly. Basically, where I was and what I was doing was I was a new mom, married two years. I had just had a child. I was working from home. This is in 1989, pre-internet. I only had a fax and I think I had email. And I was working from home as a sales executive, I think I was. And I really hated what I was doing, but it gave me the freedom to be home. And even though I had a baby at home, I did have you know childcare in the house. But I decided this is really isn't working for me. And one day, though, I hadn't gotten that far along. I went to use the loo and my supervisor called and he was screaming at me and saying, you know, you're not on the phone. You need to be on the phone right now. And I was really you know, just down the hallway. And I went back to my office and I picked up the phone and I said, I quit just like that. Boom. But what had been going on in the background 
before I got to that point, my husband and I actually were just really tired of bringing home single-use plastic bags from the store. And again, this is 28 years ago. It was really annoying. We did not live in a fancy neighborhood. We called it upstate Manhattan. And it was before in the Heights, so Lin-Manuel hadn't even coined anything yet. We were really tired of all these single-use plastic bags, and they were stuck in trees, stuck in the gutter, and they weren't even good for garbage. We didn't have a dog, so we didn't have any other secondary use. And we said, well, let's just do what they do in Europe, which is bring your own bag to the store. Well, we couldn't find any that were the right size, shape, capacity. But some friends were going to France and we asked them to bring some home for us. They did. We started using them. We started noticing people notice us using them. And we thought, hmm, maybe this is a good idea. Maybe this is something that could be a business because I needed work, right? I needed to make a living that was non-negotiable. And that sort of bumped right into me quitting that other position. And it was like, okay, let's do this now. The time is right. I just had a sense that this could catch on. I really was aligned with the idea of making a culture shift, of being an influencer in the way that people were like me, thinking that they too didn't like the single-use aspect of the bags. They saw it as wasteful. They saw it as an environmental hazard. And that's kind of where it started. I remember we sat at the kitchen table and I said, I think this could be a business. What should we call it? And my husband said, eco bags. I said, okay, good. Let's do it. You can work really hard at something you don't like and you can work really hard at something you really feel connected to. And that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in that space where I felt proud of the thing I was bringing into the marketplace because what I was doing was not just bringing a product into the marketplace to sell something to make money. I was bringing a product into the marketplace that would create create a larger culture shift that would create the kind of world that I wanted to have, which was one that was free of single-use plastic bags, wastefulness, and litter. So there you are with your French basket, and you're like, okay, people are noticing them around New York on the street and stuff. So what was your first step? Well, the first thing I did, it was the cotton net string bag that sort of expands. I know the panniers too, but the cotton net string bags that expand, and they're small enough to fit in a pocketbook or pocket, which is perfect for urban shoppers. And I just started going door to door on Columbus Avenue. There were bunch of stores. I was walking in and out of the retail store saying, with my samples, my only samples, like I had five, right? What do you think of this idea? Do you think this is a good idea? And I got enough positive responses. I mean, I also got a lot of blank stares, but I kind of followed the positive responses. And so I got enough of those and I thought, okay, well, maybe there's some life in this idea. What's the next step? So nobody was making them in the United States. So I had to start looking around the world. I contacted all the consulates. I finally identified a source. It was in Germany. France wouldn't respond and Italy sent me samples like two years later. They were beautiful, but they were like two years too late. And I said, okay, great. So I ordered a small quantity. I took the around, right? And then it was kind of almost magical in a way. That's funny that I said that because it's in my title of my book. But two things happened. First of all, we noticed a sign somewhere that said it was the 10th anniversary of Earth Day. and There was going to be a big fair on um, 6th Avenue in New York City. So we said, oh, we need to be there. So we did. We set up shop, which meant I had to get a permit for New York City. And we put out a table and somehow we coordinated the ordering between when we heard about the fair and the fair was happening. There must have been a few months in between. And we brought in a couple thousand dollars worth of string bags. So we made an investment and we set up a table. We asked my mom and dad to come down to New York and we said two for 10, three for 12. And we sold out in four hours at this Earth Day on 6th Avenue in New York City. Nice. Yeah, we just totally sold out. We also, at that point, met 
another woman who was doing something similar to what we were doing because she kept hanging out at our booth. We're like, who are you? You're spying. And we became really good friends <laughs> because we thought, you know, this is about solving a problem. This is not just about being very closed and competitive. It was more fun to cooperate and work together. So we knew we were onto something and we said, okay, let's go for it. And we started ordering more. And then somewhere around that time, my husband was shopping at our local natural products store, which back then, by the way, I wouldn't even go into. They were so dusty and dirty and just not my scene. But he was talking to some guy who was unloading things from a distributor and he introduced the concept to him. And this guy happened to be working with Stowe Mills, who then became part of UNFI, which is still the largest natural products distributor. And he took the idea back to HQ and they said, yeah, we're interested. And they started ordering thousands. Whoa. So it was a really fast takeoff. And then we started doing things like trade shows and, you know, introducing natural products retailers, because that's where we fell into the natural products industry where a lot of progressive ideas were really, you know, incubating. And how many hours a week are you working? Like, are you doing all day, all night kind of thing? Or are you balancing your life? I am working regularly. Again, pre-internet, some email, no cell phones, right? You're right. So I'm able to work from like a 10 to four day. I never worked on weekends and I don't work at night. So that's a pretty hard and fast rule. So I squeezed it all into my work days. I'm not saying that I never worked at night or on weekends. I mean, when computers started really becoming the thing and, you know, QuickBooks and then NetSuite and then cloud computing and all these things. And when all of a sudden your IT goes down, you know, so stuff happens. Allow for 20 20% of the time, nothing's working and you have to work on these, those hours you put aside. But basically I'm working, you know, a 30 hour week, maybe. Wow. Those are great boundaries because I think a lot of entrepreneurs fall into the trap of working around the clock and never giving themselves a break. Yeah, I did not do that. Again, though, when I first started, at least for the first 10 years plus, I was handwriting orders. I was entering them into an FileMaker database. Phone was the main connection. When you didn't answer your phone during working hours, nobody could reach you. They could send you fax. And they did. When we would go away for a weekend or a week, I'd come home and the entire living room would be filled with fax paper. <laughs> All over the floor. All over the floor. I have some of the original faxes. I kept them because I just thought they were so funny. Yes, they were framing. So it was easier to set boundaries. And because I had a small child, I wanted to spend time with him. I figured I didn't have him to leave him. But that is not to be confused with the fact that I did have childcare during the day. And I did that cooperatively with my neighbor who was a graduate student. So we shared childcare in the building in order to make it affordable. When there's a tiny kid in the background. You cannot. And I learned that really quickly when my son one day, when he was a little older, obviously not an infant at this point, was walking around and trying to get my attention. And I'm on the phone with a really important client and he opens a drawer and he, all of a sudden he's got a pair of really sharp scissors, but I've got a key client on the phone. What's more important? So I did, you know what most people do, excuse me, but my manager is calling me or something. I don't know. <laughs> excuse me. I have another call on the line and you know, put you on hold. Yeah, exactly. But when you take scissors out of a, you know, a small child's hands, they don't just go, okay, mom, here's the scissors. They scream. Right, of course. I understand that you've got a really important client on the phone. You go ahead. I'll just be patient. Yeah, so I did that. I had to have those boundaries in place. And the work boundaries were sort of part of my mantra from the very beginning. And as best as I can, I've held to them. That's a great lesson for our listeners yeah. because it's so easy to fall into just work way too hard or you get yeah. and get sick. I like to say it's your business to take care of yourself so yeah. that you can take care of your business. Yep. And it's like a yoga practice. You have to be kind to yourself. Sometimes, you know, you can't do that downward dog. You really just want to go into a child's pose and go to sleep. <laughs> you know? There's an important part here about, you know, if you are your business, then you have to take care of you. Yeah. I mean, over many years, I've been in business now 28 years, but 
I found my rhythm. I didn't know it at first, but for me, I'm really good from eight to like one o'clock at one thirty. Good time to go for a swim, you know, in the middle of the day. And after about two thirty, meetings, you know, because those are the things I can just sort of listen to. If it's a more active meeting, put it in the morning. But in the afternoon, I do all the things that I could do blindfolded with a little bit less brain capacity. Yeah, the yeah. things that take a lot less engagement. And I also found too that if I frame an activity that I want to do, and I frame it. I say, I'm going to do this from 10 to 11, let's say, and I stop. I only give it the amount of time I say I'm going to give it, that I'm fresher to go into the next thing that I have to do, and I get more done in that time period that I've assigned that activity to. You're giving us all kinds of great tips about how to be effective and mindful with your time. So many people are not effective with the vast majority of their time, and I think it comes from trying to do too much. Exactly, and that's why you can get really caught in the trap of just checking social media, or I have a few favorite sites like REI or Patagonia. And I'll just want be wandering over there. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I could be swimming or going for a bike ride right now. I really don't need another pair of shorts. I don't need to know this. This is not on a need to know basis. This is like, I'm just killing time here. And if I'm just killing time, why not go for a walk around the parking lot or take the dog for a walk or go for a swim? That seems to be the hardest, which is to turn everything off and just even take a three minute break. But I'm not perfect. I do it too. I catch myself doing it totally. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I have to redirect myself just like in meditation. And bring our attention back. Let's bring the conversation back. So there you are with, you know, your giant order from your big client. When did things start to take off? It's kind of embarrassing, but it took till 2008, really, for it to just completely take over. We had been talking about reusable bags and selling reusable bags, the filet bags, then canvas bags, then bulk bags and cotton produce bags as far back as 1995. And in 2000, we introduced a lot of stuff in organic. So most of it was going out to retailers in the natural products industry, either store by store independently or through a few of the distributors that we had and still have actually, like down to earth distributors and frontier co-op and stuff like that. So when it really started to permeate culture was right around the time, I call it the next wave, when Oprah actually did her first Earth Day show. And that was around the same time as Al Gore was talking about climate change. And there was just the next level of awareness that not only did people need to bring their own bags to the store, but there was some science now saying the amount of waste we're creating is not manageable. We hadn't yet gotten to the point where we are now where they're saying the amount of waste that we're creating is expensive, right? So it was hitting pocketbooks. It was like, this is not good. We're starting to see turtles with things wrapped around them and plastic bags floating in the ocean that birds pick up because they think they're jellyfish. So right around 2007, Oprah did her first Earth Day show. Now, unbeknownst to us, because four months earlier, yeah, in January of that year, I said, we need to be on Oprah because something's starting to shift here. Now, I had never watched Oprah, honest, but my mother-in-law did and my next door neighbor, because I was working and I was a mom and I was working full time. So who has time to do daytime TV? This is before TiVo. This is before all this stuff, right? And I had this idea that we should be on Oprah. So just really in a lucky way, I contacted the one PR person I knew and I said, we need to be on Oprah. And she like basically laughed. And I said, no, really, we do. I don't know who this lady is. I've never seen her show, but I hear she's great and we need to get on. Yeah, she's great. My next door neighbor, who's a very close friend, listens to her all the time. So she must have something to say. Yeah. And so they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll try to do 
that. And then I realized, no, we really do need to be on it. And then we found out she was doing this Earth Day show and we're like, we have to be on this. And it was right up until two weeks before the show. We, we didn't know that we'd be on it. And by the way, I wasn't on it. My bag was on it, right? And it got pointed to by Simran Sete, who was part of Tree Hugger. A whole lot of things were just coming together around them. And anyway, in 2007 or eight, she pointed to my bags on the show and we went from 700 to 2.2 million in a few months. Did you see so that, that live? Yeah, we did. We saw it live on our TV and I was like, like those old commercials where everybody would sit around and go, oh wow, everything would crash, you know, because <laughs> yeah. everything would just blow up and they used to call it the Oprah effect, but it would be the effect for any kind of traffic, like the websites couldn't handle it. Uh-huh. So like, what was that moment like when you're sitting there in 2007 or eight or whatever, you know, 10 years after you'd had this idea? Even more than that. I think it's 14 years. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. So you're sitting there watching Oprah and she points out your bag. What's that like? Yeah. So it happened in an instant. I think she also pointed to a clean canteen and they were tiny too. And we both were like, oh my gosh, because right away phones started ringing. Like right away, right away? Like right away, right away. Like emails started coming in. At this point, there were obviously more emails and the internet was up. We were sold out almost instantly and we were backordered for like three or four months. Oh, no way. Yeah. So what did you do when you're backordered for three or four months? We ordered more goods, got on the phones and started telling people we apologize, but we are experiencing the Oprah effect and we'll get you your goods as soon as we can. And people were great. They were literally calling us up going, I want to go green because she touched that nerve. She, I think, was able to say, look, people, we're ruining what we got that's really good, which is this natural environment that we all live in and we all have to participate, you know, in making sure we don't make it worse. Well, you know, P.S., it's gotten worse and worse and worse every year, but also the movement to clean it up has gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. So hopefully, you know, the environmentalists will win out. If only proving that it costs too much to create a dirty environment, that pollution is expensive. Yes. And so we're profitable too. I want to get that in. So we did bootstrap. We started with a couple thousand dollars, which in today's dollars figure maybe six, seven, eight, you know, if you were to use one of those calculators. And every time we sold, we retained some of the cash as an asset and obviously use some of it as a comp. And at the very beginning, I didn't compensate myself enough. I tell people to compensate themselves no matter what, even if it's a small percentage, you got to get something back in. Yeah, you got to pay yourself. I was very confused by that. I thought, oh, I have to pay myself. You know, someone who hired me would give me a salary. It's not that. Probably a very small percentage of that. There's something about giving yourself a check in addition to just expenses. There's something psychological about that. Yes. You're your own business owner and you're doing it not just to do something for good, but because you want to make a profit and because you want to make a living with your business. Yeah, exactly. Because you have to support yourself. Yeah. So that needs to come first. Otherwise, it finds a way to get spent. Right. And if you don't have profit, if you don't build an asset and you cannot be profitable, you can't run. I mean, it's like trying to do a yabba-dabba-doo car. You need electricity or you need, you know, unfortunately still oil, gas to run a car. And if you can't find a way to find profit at the beginning or early on, then your business has a key flaw in it. And part of that though is really knowing the vertical you're in, the industry you're in and all the different components in that industry. For instance, my goods, consumer product. What is the layer between the manufacturer and getting it on the shelf? How many layers are there? I mean, so much has changed now. And so you have to adjust for where you are in not only your vertical, but the year. But it used to be, you know, to get something on the shelf, you had a rep and you had a broker or you had a distributor or you had a salesperson. You might have a sales team. You have your marketing people. You have all these different layers that are contributing to help you get that thing from A to B. Everybody who's got their hand in that bucket is compensated in some way. So you 
your price. You know, how you fix your price has to include all of that, plus the profit that you're going to want so that you can retain it, so that you can build your assets, so that you can throw more money back into your business to build it. And you had to figure all this out from scratch. And I had to make adjustments because nothing's ever solid. I mean, when I brought on reps, I was like, oh, I don't have 15% in there. I got to make it. If I don't add it in, I'm taking it out of profit. So let's go back because there's this piece about 2008 that's hanging out here with your business. Oh yeah. Okay. Taking off and here you've got the Oprah effect. Orders are taking off. The phone is ringing off the hook. Emails are coming in. Yeah. And then Lehman Brothers crashes. Oh yeah. And then Lehman Brothers crashes. And I'm like, we're immune. I thought we were immune. I really did. I didn't pay much attention to it, even though I can point exactly to the moment in a bar on the upper east side of Manhattan where I went to like a green drinks kind of event. Somebody in a similar industry was like, you got to furlough people. You got to lay them off. You got to start cutting back. You know, it's like, no, are you kidding? We're good. (laughs) We got this. Reusable bags are finally popular. People are calling us and not just people, consumers, stores and fortune 500 companies are coming to us and we're making things that are custom. You know, we went from 700 to 2.2 to three. So we're on an upswing and we're really profitable. So we're not in the danger zone. No, 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 not us. We just need to sail through this. Let's go to yoga. So I signed everybody up for yoga. Well, that was wrong step to do, but mostly everybody liked yoga. But what we didn't do at that point that I know now that I coach people with is to retain as much of your asset as possible, be extremely conservative with it because you never know when something like the recession is going to hit. And it did not hit us till 2010. When it hit, it sucked the wind out of our sails. Oh boy. And it wasn't because people didn't want our product. That's what's interesting to note about it. The demand was still really strong. But what happened in 2010 is all the retailers that were buying goods from us wholesale and reselling them, the customers that were coming into their stores were buying less and over longer periods of time. So then the retailers buy from us less and they pay over longer periods of time, right? And so if you follow that through, even if we would sell to a distributor who would sell to a retailer who would sell to a consumer, the whole process was shortening and being drawn out and everything was slowing down. So we didn't really have anybody who didn't pay if they owed us money and we didn't lose that many customers, but we had customers who ordered less and paid slower. So that just sort of flattened out the cash flow. You know what I'm saying? We didn't have it coming in the way it had been coming in and we had built ourselves up for the rise up and we were at full capacity to grow. So you had taken all those retained earnings that you were making, you know, you were doing, you were super profitable. So you were investing in your own growth and then the bottom We were investing, right. We were investing on our own growth by adding people and processes and then the bottom fell out. Like I said, 700, 2.2, 3 million down to 1.5. 3 million down to 1.5. And that's gross sales, right? Yeah. Gross sales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So half. Yeah. In that time, because I'm a member of the Women's President's Organization, which is an organization for women in businesses of over a million if you're a service and over two if you're a consumer product, I saw people that I know go completely flatten out from six million to zero in that time. Because the big box stores in that time said, well, gee, our sales are slower, but we know our customers will come back. So we'll keep your product on our shelves. But gee, we can't pay for that product for about 12 months. So you hang out with us, okay? 
So you're being asked to weather the storm and you've got, meanwhile, all your fixed costs going on. Yeah. And you're trying to stretch yourself across this time when you know things are going to rebound. So around that time, we were lucky though, as we were flailing, you know, I still went on vacation. I like to tell the story how I took a distress call from a tent in the woods in Connecticut with a CFO and said, I don't know what to do. Here's the thing with vacation. Nothing's going to fall apart in a week if it's already falling apart. (laughs) What's a week? What's another few days? You get to Wednesday and the weekend's almost in sight. Deal with it Monday. It'll be fine. Exactly. I'll deal with it Monday. I was, you know, dancing in the woods. So, you know, it was not easy. And what I know now that I didn't know then was really how to forecast work inside a budget and how to stretch cash. I mean, there's so many ways to stretch cash. Some is taking deposits from customers. Sometimes it's asking them to use a credit card instead of, you know, doing terms. Sometimes it's the opposite of that. Whatever works for you and your business, because the least expensive money you can get, because money's a tool, right? It's just some something that you mass and spend. It's an actual tool. The least costly money is actually from a bank if you can get it in terms of credit line. If you can't get a credit line, a low interest credit card, but only use that credit card for business and always make sure that you know you don't tap it out. I really started to learn how to use all of these tools much more effectively to narrowly escape death, right? <laughs> and then to start to rebuild the business in a way more profitable way. And I did lose a few people. I couldn't fire them, but it was through attrition. Yeah. You know, they went on and did different things with their lives. And when they left, I didn't replace them. Everybody had to take on more responsibilities. Yeah. So you've got the same amount of work spread across fewer people. Yeah. But remember, we had lower sales. So was it the same amount of work? That also allowed us to see in terms of efficiencies that, you know, don't add another position until you're almost breaking. Really push those outer edges of what your capacity is, at least for my business, because there's also expansion and contraction. We're actually looking at that right now. We're expanding a lot in one particular area of the business, but I don't want to add just one person for that because I know that it expands in, you know, April, May, June, but then it shrinks in, you know, mid-July, August, September. So we're playing with how to do that most effectively. And it's harder when you're a small business, or as I say, a tiny business, because you don't have all that extra profit to have somebody sort of be flat in between. So you have to have people who can do multiple kinds of tasks. Right. You need the right people who can bounce around and do a bunch of different things effectively. The specialists, sometimes don't fit. Yeah, not until you're bigger and then you need yeah. the specialists. You just don't have the luxury of those larger corporations where they have one person who does one thing all day long. Right. All they do and is manage the social media. And you're like, yeah, I do all that before yeah. 8 a.m. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you also, though, it forces you to look at your efficiencies and where you're inefficient because, you know, the equivalent of checking Facebook during the day is doing something more complicated than it needs to be. And that's not always easy either because, you know, people have different personalities and they approach problems differently and you don't want to step on them. And as a leader, you don't want to micromanage, but you might actually bite off all your nails if you see someone, you know, designing a graph to do projected sales when they could just say, hey, sales for this month were X, you know? Right, right. Like, I mean, don't give me the picture. Say it. <laughs> right. We're done in 30 seconds versus the 10 minutes of that graph. Yeah, I don't need the graph. Right, I got it. It's pretty simple. I got it. Give me the narrative. You, know, I don't need to know to the penny everything. Right, give right. me the overview. Yeah. So what you're getting at here is really figuring out how to stretch those pennies and make sure that you've 
squeeze every bit of efficiency into the system so that you're not duplicating efforts, that people aren't wasting time on unnecessary things. Yeah. And I think you see that when you're working at full capacity and then you balance that by looking at when there's more time. Yeah. Not that everybody has to be busy every minute either. I'm not advocating for that. You really need to make sure your employees are not stressed out, right? And you're not stressed out. But there's a difference there because if you don't work efficiently, you can really stress out. And you don't want to be frenzied because then that's a lot of wasted energy and focus going towards the frenzy. Your sales cut in half. So how did you get out of that? I actually wound up hiring a interim CEO who, in retrospect, did everything I could have done if I wasn't freaking out. I call it my $300,000 MBA. Oh boy. Yeah. He was not inexpensive. I cut a deal with him. It was very generous, let's just say. Yeah, I was willing to do anything to get myself out of this painful situation I was in. I also, at that point, realized my people were not really particularly listening to me because I had been saying a lot of the same things, but apparently they hadn't been hearing what I was saying. So I had to really learn some new leadership skills. You know, I'm always learning and adjusting. It's just like acting. You're learning and you're adjusting and you're learning and you're adjusting. There's no perfect one way to do anything. And he came in and he just created efficiencies basically is what he did. And he was able to work with everybody in the team. He knew that I didn't want to lose anybody, but he was able to bring everybody around, create efficiencies. And, you know, over time, we not only survived, we were thriving again. But something I have to say about this whole time period though is because we were sort of cut in half and we were scrambling at the same time that our category that we helped to create broke open, there were a million competitors now. Right. They see the opportunity and they see that you're nailing it. They're so much better funded than me. We were, again, a tiny business and we hadn't taken on any money and we didn't go for any venture. People were knocking on our door, but we were like, no, we're good. But you know, you get these other companies that come in and they're, you know, 20 times your size and they can bring in containers of what you're doing. And they just started creating the whole bottom feeding frenzy with lower cost goods. And actually, I think robbing the higher end culture shift, let's say, not so much higher end in terms of luxury, but the ethical piece of what we were trying to do too, because they came in with a lot of low cost, you know, quote unquote, reusable bags from non-woven polypropylene. It's a petro based product. And a lot of them were shabbily made and it was a rush to market and consumers wanted the thing that was the cheapest. Yeah. And to them, it still solves the problem. Yeah. It still solves the problem. They're still putting broccoli that's wrapped in plastic in their reusable bags. So that one wave only got so far. You know, capitalism is pretty strong, right? I mean, there's an opportunity. The market gets opened. The idea creeps in. People want to do that. You know, I'd like to say it goes from being, oh, cool idea to, oh, I should be doing that too, to I'm going to do that because that's cool. It becomes a me issue. And we were still working to survive as a business in this now very competitive landscape with our hands kind of tied behind our back. So we brought in the CEO. He built in a lot of efficiencies. We were turning around again. And I noticed that he was working less and less and less. And I was like, I know how to work less. I know how to go swimming every day at one. That's something I know how to do. So that's when I needed to cut my ties with him, which was kind of painful because you get to know people and like them. And there's an element of he's in the role of CEO. In some ways, it's easier. You tell me of how it was for you, but you hand off a little bit of the responsibility and the stress of it being all up to you. Right. So there was that too. And he wanted to stay in. But I, at this point, after giving up a lot of my compensation so that I could take him on, I was like, I can't. Besides, I've watched you do this now for a year or whatever. I know I'm watching you. I know how to do this. Yeah, I can do this. I can do this. I was actually two and a half years. I'm watching you. I've been watching you and I've been seeing what you're doing. And I know how to do this. But I learned it by watching him. Well, he may not have been intentionally teaching you, but he was a good teacher. And that's the thing is he wasn't 
wasn't intentionally teaching me. <laughs> he was keeping what he knew to himself, not like in a negative way, just not, you know, actively sharing it yeah. because he saw himself having a role and he did, but there wasn't room for two of us. Right. So after two and a half years of watching him, you now know what you need to know and right. you take back the reins. And don't think I, you know, at some points haven't second guessed myself thinking, oh, if he stayed on and then I got a little more and he got a little less and we could have figured it out. But I was like, I don't know. I've been doing this for what, 24 years? You know, I don't know how much more is left in it for me. Relative to when things got really sticky around 2008, where is Ecobags yeah. now? Oh, we're healthy. We're smaller than we were at our height. People say, where are you? And I just wrote the book, The Magic of Tiny Business. And I say, you know, we're in the 2 million average range. And that's gross. We work really hard to maintain 50% plus margins. And I have goals for my net margin, which I don't like to share. It's enough to make sure everyone's compensated well and we retain some of the profit as an asset to put back into the company. In down years, it can get really tight. I really want to work with a share model so that there's a reward piece in there for everybody. And we're okay. We're healthy. And this is what you talk about in your book. And it's the magic of tiny business. Not only is it a really great blueprint for those of us who want to start a business but have no idea how to start a business and are intimidated and think we have to you know, make a hundred million in the first five years, that it's really this idea that you can have a business. It doesn't have to be huge in order to A, be impactful and B, be profitable. Exactly. And you know, a tiny business can be a couple million dollars. I mean, it doesn't have to be a teensy tiny business. What I mean by a tiny, it's like the tiny house movement. It's very intentional with what you do and what you don't do. You know, it's more like carving your path as opposed to just responding to all the stimulus. A business can drive you, but you want to actually drive the business. And the only way you can do that is by being extremely intentional with what you want to get out of it and how you want to be with it. And that's different for every single person. I mean, someone might want to work more hours than I work, but I wanted to have time, you know, with my family and I wanted to spend time, you know, out of the business as well as building it. I wanted to make sure that everything I did was, you know, fairly and sustainably sourced. Well, that took another level of engagement and it wasn't always the easiest thing. So one thing that stands out to me, you didn't just create a company and eco bags. In a way, you started a movement around a habit and people's shopping bag experience. Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? Who knew? when I started, I needed to make a living and I needed to make a living and I wanted to do something that I really believed in. And I knew that other people felt like me with regards to single use plastic waste, etc. Then I was like, wait a minute, having a business is like having a stage. It's having a platform for your ideas. You know, whether you're selling a product or a service, you're communicating a story with people about something you believe in, right? Yeah. And you're working with them to help them craft their story and their attachment to what they believe in. Then they take your story and take it further than you could possibly have ever taken it. It's so great how we inspire one another with what we've done and our successes. Sharon, the community of She Thinks Big listeners is a community of women who have a business that makes a dent in the world's problems. What do you want them to know? I want them to know that they're not alone. And they're not alone in a lot of really big ways. And by becoming parts of those communities and weaving yourself into them, you realize you may think that you're independent in your business, but really when you're starting a business or running a tiny business, you're interdependent. It's so true. So many entrepreneurs think that they're kind of out there all alone and it does feel really lonely. So that piece about, you know, no, you're not alone. There are communities out there that are welcoming and there to support you. So if you could have one wish when it comes to shopping bags and plastic, what would it be? 
Well, my wish for shopping bags and reducing single-use plastics goes way beyond the shopping bag. How about a statewide, if not federal, ban on single-use plastic shopping bags? Yeah, done. My new most hated thing is plastic-wrapped cauliflower. I don't know if I want a ban more than I want a fee. How about let's just make sense? Okay, so a fee on single-use plastic shopping bags and an end to plastic-wrapped, plastic-wrapped cauliflower. I want to pivot now to talking about your book. What inspired you to write it? Because one of the great things about your book is how simple you make it for would-be entrepreneurs to wrap their arms around what it is to start a business. Great. Thank you. I wrote the book because I just felt like in many ways, if I did it, anyone can. But I realized embedded in that statement is that I learned a lot as I went along and I made a lot of mistakes and you don't have to make those because a lot of them were painful. So learn from my mistakes, please. Take it even further than I've taken it, but this is what's worked for me. This is what's created a profitable, impactful business that is recognized as a leadership business. And I really do want to just share what I learned at this point. I want other people to be as successful as they can be in using business as a force for good. It's such a great little book. I listened to it when I was out for a walk on a series of days. It's really packed with brilliant, simple insights that you don't have to know everything when you start out. Your business needs to work for you so that you can expand it and scale it to whatever size you want. And in that world of tiny business, the thinking is you can scale it to whatever you want. It's not about the outside pressure forcing you to conform to some American myth. It's about what's going to work for you to really, as you know, Seth Godin actually said to me, tiny is mighty. Leave it to Seth Godin to say something pithy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. He's great. He is great. Sharon, this has been a real treat to have you on the She Thinks Big podcast. Thank you so much for coming. I'm actually thrilled that we're having this conversation. I love this and I want other people to be inspired to go forth. Thank you, Sharon, for sharing the journey of EcoBags and more importantly, for sourcing a movement of people who were just waiting for your canvas bags to come along because they too didn't want to be using single-use plastic bags for their shopping. You can check out all of EcoBags products at ecobags.com. You can get Sharon's book, The Magic of Tiny Business, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. It's also on Audible if you're the listening type. You can reach Sharon via her website at SharonRow.com. You might be able to connect with her in person through one of her many speaking engagements. One of the things that Sharon said that stopped me in my tracks was, notice where you're inefficient. The equivalent of checking Facebook during the day is making a task more complicated than it needs to be. I don't know about you, but I do this all the time. I'm detail-oriented, and I make things harder than they need to be by overthinking. And I can get my perfectionist cape on in a New York second. Making things more complicated than they need to be can be a huge waste of time. And I can promise you that I'm practicing MVPing things in my own life. This podcast is just one way that I'm doing it. The episodes I've put out so far have not been perfect, and I know it. I hear mistakes, edits, blips, and do-overs that I want to fix. But if I needed them to be perfect before publishing, they'd still be hiding away on my hard drive. The other thing I loved about Sharon and EcoBags is that she is exactly the kind of person I'm hoping to inspire and work with with this podcast. So big thinkers, when it comes to complicating, overthinking, and endless polishing, how do you get in your own way? What's it costing you? And what's one small thing you can do differently to begin riding the ship? Come share in the She Thinks Big Facebook group. If you're not a member, come join us. Go to Facebook and search She Thinks Big and you'll find us. It's free and it's the best place to be if your big ideas need airtime and support to grow. The other thing I loved about Sharon and EcoBags is that she is exactly the kind of person I'm hoping to inspire and work with with this podcast. Sharon saw a problem, noticed that no one else was working on it, and thought, 
How can I solve this and make the world a better place and make a decent living at the same time? We need more women who do what she did. See the problem, figure out a solution, and find a way to make a living at it. If this is you and you want help growing your idea into a sustainable business, I would love to work with you. Check out the Work With Me tab on my website, shethinksbigpodcast.com, to learn more about my strategy sessions and one-on-one coaching packages. I can help you get on a faster track to growing your impact and your income. All right, big thinkers, thanks for listening and see you next week. You've been listening to the She Thinks Big podcast. If you want to find out more about it or hear previous episodes of the show, head over to my website, shethinksbigpodcast.com. If you want to connect with other women who are thinking big, playing big, and showing up big, head over to our Facebook community or click the join button at shethinksbigpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe at Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave me a raving five-star review. Seriously, it helps me get found on iTunes, which helps more people like you find the show, which helps us all do more good in the world. And last thing, I want to know what you're thinking big about. You can write to me at Geraldine at shethinksbigpodcast.com. Or if you want to send a tweet, I'm at Geraldine Carter. And now go have yourself a big day. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Registration is open now, but it won't be for long. Go to GeraldineCarter.com now to enroll today.